I'd invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 13. You can already see in your bulletins the name Judas right there in front of you. And as I was looking at this passage throughout the week, I realized that the topic of the life of Judas isn't a real popular one. When some of our respected preachers, teachers, and authors whom we love and follow are asked to speak at conferences, I imagine that they rarely, if at all, are ever asked to come and preach to us about Judas. He's an unpopular character in the storyline of the Bible, but he is, in fact, a historical figure that the church in all generations must come to understand why he's there. What can we learn from the life of Judas for us in the church today? If you're there in John chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 30. And I'm going to jump right into, verses eight, into verse 18, but just to show you what's going on, you, you know in John chapter 13, Jesus, Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet, the 12, as he is there in the upper room with his chosen ones. And he has just given them an example and a pattern to follow after. And if you look there in verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things the things that I've taught you, the example and pattern that I have shown you, blessed are you if you do them. And now verse 18, he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. A hard passage to have to read and to come to understand. It's not a very encouraging one when you think and look at the life of Judas and what he's about to do by betraying the very Son of God. 
So again, we are entering into now the upper room discourse in John's gospel. That's chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 in the gospel of John. Now, if you remember, just a few weeks ago, we had covered Jesus' final invitation to the Jews, to the crowds, to the public, his final call for anyone to believe on him while he was with them. He had warned the people time and time again that it was going to be his final call. If you're there in John chapter 13, look over at John chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Speaking of himself, he said, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have this light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John the Apostle then begins to show his readers why there was such catastrophic unbelief on the part of the Jewish nation. Then beginning in chapter 13, Jesus is alone with his disciples celebrating the feast of Passover there in that upper room discourse. Now, remember, we are in Passion Week. We are on the Thursday of this Passion Week. We are on the eve of the crucifixion of Christ, just hours away from Jesus going with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Apostle John is, again, writing these words just 60 years after this upper room discourse. You're there, look at John chapter 13. John says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John is there as this is happening and as this is unfolding. He doesn't know all the things that are going on. John writes of this account 60 years later and now knows all that's going on as the Holy Spirit shows him and reveals him all the things that he missed as he was there during this event. But Jesus knows what's coming around the corner. He had been warning his disciples over and over and over again of the events that were about to transpire. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, look, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified. Yet the Son of Man will be raised on the third day. And it says in Matthew 20 that the disciples, because of that truth, were greatly distressed. 
So when it says that in John chapter 13, that Jesus knows that he is going back to God, he knows what has to happen before that happens. He knows the suffering that's coming. He knows the pain, the beatings, the mockery, the rejection, all of it ultimately leading up to his death. And he knows he has very little time to instruct his disciples as much as he possibly can before he is taken away. They are greatly distressed. And Jesus wants to instruct them, care for them, love them. He wants to then promise them the coming of the Holy Spirit who would then become their comforter when he leaves. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in the upper room discourse. Abide in me. When I leave, ask the Father in my name all that you need, and he will supply you. You will have sorrow when I leave, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Always remember all the hostility that you face in the world. I have overcome the world. Promise after promise after promise. Encouragement after encouragement after encouragement that Jesus gives to the disciples there in the upper room discourse. But before all of those promises, before all of those heartwarming encouragements that the disciples need, now and especially of all that's going to take place, he tells them in so many words, one of you is a devil. One of you is a fake. One of you, 12, is actually completely and fully against me, and one of you has been against me for my entire ministry. Jesus is in the middle of showing the disciples a selfless service by washing their feet, a humility that they are to follow in his example. And right after that act, it's as if he puts the water basin down and he then shows that it's time. He decides to unmask the betrayer. Now is the time in Jesus' divine timetable for him to show the 11 disciples that this type of evil is actually possible. That this type of evil is not outside of us, but it can actually be among us. It's not just out there. It can actually be right here among all of us. These words from Christ, this decision for Christ to do this at this time, I think is both instructive and encouraging for the disciples. This is an act of the true and good shepherd to defend his sheep from a wolf. It's instructive to show them as well the possibility that there are actually anti-Christs, false disciples, even among you, who are secretive, 
who are hard to detect and difficult to identify. What we'll also see is it's supposed to be for the disciples as an encouragement to the 11 to show that Christ is completely sovereign over all of these betrayers. And it does not thwart at all the plans and decrees of God. That's what we're going to see. It's both instructive for the disciples and it's an encouragement for the disciples. And it's the same thing for us today. That's the two things that I want us to see from this account with Judas. We need to be instructed and to come to understand that this level of deception is possible. This type of hypocrisy and evil does exist. We should expect it and we need to be on guard. And also, it's an encouragement that Jesus is completely sovereign over it all. It doesn't change his plans. It doesn't change our mission. And it's actually a part of his plans. That's what I want us to see, just those two things. It's both instructive for us, and it's also encouraging for us as well. Now look there at verse 19. If you haven't gone back to our passage, look at John chapter 13 and verse 19. Jesus says, he tells the disciples the reason why he is unmasking the betrayer. I'm telling you this right now. And the reason is to show the disciples that unmasking the betrayer right now among them would actually have Scripture be fulfilled. And that the eleven would come to know as scattered and as fearful as they are right now, they would come to know of Jesus' divine omniscience. They would know, come to know of his foreknowledge and that he's in complete control of this situation. Judas doesn't come to Jesus in a surprising way whatsoever. He's not caught off guard by the level of hypocrisy that comes from Judas. So we ask the question, what scripture is being fulfilled right now by Jesus unmasking the betrayer. Jesus quotes Psalm 41 and verse 9. And in that psalm, David laments of a betrayal by one of his close friends. And because of that, David says in 41.9, he says, He who eats my bread has lifted his heel against me. And eating your bread together was a symbol of friendship. There's other psalms that David writes of when he speaks of enemies betraying him, and worst of all, friends betraying him, or even family betraying him. He had experienced betrayal. Absalom, his son, for instance, who betrayed him. And all of those betrayals pointed forward to a time where the Messiah would experience something similar as well in his own ministry, in his own life, even something greater as well. In Mark chapter 14, 
verse 18, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. One who is associating himself with me as a trusted friend and a companion is actually now taking advantage of me. That's the scripture that's going to be fulfilled. And he brings up this scripture, this fulfillment of scripture for the benefit of the disciples. You say, how so? Well, Aaron's going to turn on to me for on the overhead, Isaiah chapter 43. Now, before you look at it, you see there in verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. I want you to keep in front of you John chapter 13. Don't turn to Isaiah, but just look overhead and see the passage that I'm going to read. Because there in verse 19, he says, I am. You have a he there, but that he in the original is not there. This is another I am statement coming from the lips of Christ. We've recognized and seen and gone through all of those I am statements in the gospel of John where Jesus takes for himself the name of God. And when you think of the great I am, you, of course, go back to the event where Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says to God, well, who am I supposed to tell the people that you are? What is your name? And God says, I am that I am. And Jesus takes for himself here the same exact name of God. And that's right to do so for us to go back to Exodus 3. But I want you to see something, an even stronger passage in verse, excuse me, in Isaiah 43, verses 9 through 13. Let me explain the context of what's going on. Yahweh is calling on all of the pagan gods and idols of the nations to come during the Babylonian captivity. He calls on all of their so-called idols and gods to come and to predict the future. Yahweh calls on all gods to come and to speak prophetic truth. Tell us the things that will come to pass. If you see there in verse 9, wait, I got to turn there first, don't I? Isaiah 43 and verse 9, Yahweh says, All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. The pagan nations had no witnesses to give credit to their gods that they were able to predict the future. So in verse 10, Yahweh says to Israel, Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that what? That I 
Um, you see the similar language between Isaiah 43 and there before you in John chapter 13. Yahweh is saying to Israel, you're my witnesses. Let the so-called idols and gods know that I am the one, the only one who can predict the future. I can tell you former things. I can tell you when they come to pass. You have there continuing in Isaiah 43. He says, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work who can turn it back. Identical language that Jesus is using on purpose there in John chapter 13. Jesus is putting his divine omniscience as the great I am on display so that his disciples would be completely comforted that he knows all things and he has it all under control. That if Jesus predicts and knows that Judas was going to do this the entire time, he's in control of all of it. The disciples, this is going way over their heads but they will come back and see and know that he is the great I am and they would be comforted by it. You're there still in John chapter 13. Look over at John chapter 17. And verse 12, Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of the 11 disciples. And he says, Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas' betrayal was known, foreknown, and predetermined by the God of the universe. Before time even began, he knew it all. And understand this, Judas still acted of his own volition. Judas wasn't a robot. Judas did exactly what he desired to do. And he is fully accountable for his actions. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 22, Jesus said, For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Where is he going? He's going to the cross because it's been determined for him to go to the cross and to die for the sins of humanity. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see that? Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter says to the Jews in that sermon, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here you have God's complete sovereignty alongside using the evil of man and their choices that he used to serve his own good sovereign purposes. Does that make sense? What do we make of those passages? It's the same thing we've seen back in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph said it real well of his brothers. You, my brothers, meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. Just like Joseph's brothers who hated Joseph and left him to die in the pit, God used their evil to lift up Joseph so that Joseph can save millions of lives. The evil and wicked plans of Judas to betray Jesus Christ was meant for evil. And as the betrayer that he was and the hypocrite that he was, he will suffer eternal condemnation for his actions. But God meant it for good because God used in his foreknowledge the evil plans of Judas to bring about the good of redemption so that the death of Christ that Judas meant for evil God would use to save millions and millions and millions of people. Just like the men of Israel to whom Peter preached, they meant it for evil by killing the Messiah. God determined that it would be so. But that doesn't absolve the guilt of those who caused his death. God meant it for good to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It is such a comfort, beloved, to know that our God is both wise enough and powerful enough to make all things, all things work together for good for all of those who are called according to his purposes. That takes a very wise, sovereign, yet powerful God to do that very thing. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Judas. Look there at verse 20. If you're still in John 17, turn back over to John chapter 13. <clears throat> verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. <clears throat> and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. It may seem like Jesus' words are kind of out of place there, but they're not. You see, the danger that disciples are facing right now is the realization that there is a traitor among them. And it would cause them to lose hope in all that Christ commanded them. Despair could easily creep into their plan and to their mission and everything that Christ has said up until this point. There's a traitor among us. There's no way. A hypocrite? If that's true, how can we 
trust each other as we're supposed to go out and preach the gospel to every creation. We face the same thing today, do we not? This pastor falls. This prominent leader falls in the church. A sex scandal here, a sex scandal there. Come to find out that this prominent Christian lived an entire lie once he died. We all came, all this truth came to surface. The world grabs on firmly to those stories and runs with them as much as possible, almost as if they're trying to ease their conscience of the rejection of the Christ they know exists. And we see those stories of the true church and we're prone to get discouraged. But Jesus is saying to the disciples, this does not take away your credibility. He is simply saying, this changes nothing for you who are my true church. Fear not. You are still my ambassadors, representing your heavenly king. Though one of you is going to fall away, you 11 still hold the apostolic office that I've given to you. And this will really become even more abundantly clear after this, Judas is going to be dismissed. And all those promises and encouragements that Jesus has for them, they go to the 11. It's as if Jesus knows of everything that he wants to say, and he wants to exclude Judas because it, all these things don't apply to him whatsoever. They apply to the 11. Look there at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. After Jesus reassures them that they would continue as his representatives, Jesus then becomes troubled. There's only a few times in the Gospels where we read that Jesus became troubled. If you remember in John chapter 12 and verse 27, when Jesus is speaking about the hour of his death, he says, now is my soul troubled. And the Greek word for troubled is used figuratively to speak of mental or spiritual turmoil. So what is it exactly that he is troubled by? It doesn't say. But we can speculate. Being betrayed by a friend. The love that Jesus had shown Judas and Judas still wished to betray him. The hell that awaited Judas, the presence of Satan about to enter into Judas, the sin bearing that was so close. But I do think with the theme of this passage, I think that he is troubled by Judas. Here is Jesus troubled by the truth that one of his closest followers would betray him over to his very enemies. I'd like to think that the God-man was troubled by Judas because honestly what comes next is very difficult for me to understand. Verse 22, after Jesus 
says to them, one of you will betray me. This has to be the most shocking part of this event. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. You just think about what's going on in the mind of the disciples as of right now. They all look around at the rest of the disciples, the friends. They start to begin and think of every conversation they've had with one another over the last three, three and a half years. Every interaction that they've had with Jesus individually. Every time Jesus healed someone, they're asking themselves, who who was it that had a careless look on their face when Jesus was healing somebody? Every time Jesus was teaching and preaching with those weighty words, who was it that was just so distracted by everything else that was going on and maybe given a yawn or two by Christ's weighty words that he was saying? Who looked careless among the rest of them? Who among them didn't go to the villages and to the towns and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and proclaim that they need to repent and that the Messiah is here. And we have every reason to believe that the 12 did miracles, cast out demons, heal the sick. They all prayed together. They had meals together. They spent the night together. They were with each other a lot. And they all look around, and they have no clue who the traitor is. Mark records in chapter 14 that they all began to be grieved, and each one of them said to Jesus, Is it I? Is it I? Nothing in their minds pushes them one bit at all to think it may be Judas. So much so that they think that there's a strong possibility that it's one of them before it's him. You know what this is? This is a sort of a tribute to the effectiveness of Judas's hypocrisy. a tribute to him. I have to give it up to him. He fooled everybody. If you're there in chapter 13, you look over at chapter 12. We don't know much about the life of Judas, even in all of Christ's ministry. Towards the end, you remember this account when Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment, chapter 12 and verse 3, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now remember, John wrote this 60 years later. 
So when this actually happened, John does not think Judas could be a betrayer. He does not know what's going on. He he thinks he is a trusted friend. Verse 6, John says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The disciples trusted him so much that he was in charge of their money. There was nothing in the disciples' mind to indicate that it could possibly be Judas who would betray Christ. It's a, tr- it's a very tough truth, church, but you know what this tells me? Everything in the Christian life can be faked. If Judas were to come to our church, no one would suspect him. He would become a member of our church. He would know the gospel. He would know it real well. He could teach it. He can preach it. He can have an amazing testimony. His life could be attractive. He would be friendly. He may even go off to seminary. He may affirm affirm the Reformed faith. He's read all of the systematic theologies. He's very smart. He's very clever. He appears to be very holy. He abstains from the lust of the world. He's passionate, zealous, loves people. He may even become a pastor. I mean, everyone in his life affirms his gifts. Why wouldn't he? He posts articles, sermons, blogs that all speak very highly of shepherding the heart. And I mean, if you're a real true pastor, you shepherd the heart because you can't fake that. He condemns boldly and loudly any form of legalism or externalism as any real pastor should. He calls out false teachers. He affirms inerrancy. I think you get the point. This person can come to us, church, affirm all of those things that I showed, and he can live outwardly in all those ways that I just mentioned. And yet, he can be unconverted all while wearing the mask of hypocrisy. You know, my wife and I are very different in a lot of ways for which I am thankful for. I mean, I don't always have the best attitude about it, but I know I should, and I am. I'm growing in my understanding that God has designed marriage that she has strengths where my weaknesses are, and I have strengths where her weaknesses are, and we complement each other very, very well. And I'd say one of my weaknesses, she says it's not really a weakness, but I kind of see it as a weakness. It's a kind of an ignorance in my mind when it comes to this level of evil. I'm caught off guard that to the reality that someone can actually wear a mask all of the time, 
They know that they are living a complete lie. That someone, even worse, can live a complete lie and yet minister to the people of God your entire life. Not care for them whatsoever, but lie and fake it the entire time. Peter says in 2 Peter of false teachers that they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. What does that mean? They go fishing for those who are young in the faith. They prey upon the weak to feed themselves. And he says that they have hearts trained in greed. It's it's just so troubling to me that that level of evil can exist inside of the church. It's not that I don't believe it. I just can't be brought to the understanding that it's actually so possible and it actually happens all the time. But my wife, she's a little different. For her, she'll say, yep, I believe it. No problem here. That evil exists. I've seen it in my life. I've experienced it. She's very aware of it. And because of her experiences in life, to recognize and see the evilness that indwells individuals that she's experienced, she doesn't trust people very easily. And I think that's a strength. And it's very, very helpful to me. Here's two applications for us, church, as we continue. We have to understand that there will be defectors, hypocrites, false disciples, false teachers who infiltrate the church. And Christ is saying to us today, be faithful. Continue in your your mission. Continue to serve Christ, who is your treasure. And don't put too much trust in men. They will fail you. And don't allow the hypocrisy of a few among you take you off course. Serve Christ and trust him completely. He is the only one, church, who will never fail you whatsoever. And two, another comfort comes to us in those remaining verses. Look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. You know what I'm comforted by? 
Judas may have fooled all the disciples, but you cannot fool the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot fool the omniscient one who sees all things, even into the souls and hearts of men. You will not fool the sovereign one. You will not fool the holy one. You will not fool the God of all truth, the just judge of heaven and earth, who sees and knows all things. We may not always know who the wolves in sheep clothing are. It may happen. We may not know all of those who are surrounded around and in the Christian faith, who are in it for ungodly reasons. But Christ knows every single one of them and their cleverness will not prevail. I know that this hits home for a lot of us. Some of us in our walk with Christ have experienced betrayal, liars, manipulators, hypocrites, who at one time or another appear to have a level of genuineness who appear to be very godly Christians, to find out that it was all an act for their own selfish end. And some of those pretenders even used some of you to serve their own ungodly pleasure and evil agenda. They did. Not just if you've been here for a number of years, some of you have come here in the last year or two and have had similar stories. I've heard them. Here is something to help and comfort you. Jesus is saying, it happened to me too. I was taken advantage of. I was used for someone's evil agenda and selfish ambition. Our elder brother, our Lord, your Lord, your elder brother, your friend has experienced the same kind of betrayal. He was tempted in all ways just like us and yet was without sin. Friends, If you have been through something like that, Christ is your greatest counselor. Because he has also experienced the same exact things. He speaks to you from experience. I have been betrayed. I have been abused. I have been used by those with an evil agenda. And Jesus responds. This is how we respond to those. Because some of those who have betrayed us are still out there. How do we respond? The same exact way that Jesus responds to Judas. And one is an offer of restoration. And if that offer of restoration isn't taken, all that's left is judgment. In this culture, right here in in this culture that we find Christ and the disciples to take a morsel of bread, 
To dip it in the common dish and offer it to someone was a sign or a gesture of special friendship. In the Old Testament, we read that Boaz invited Ruth into his place to come fellowship with him. And he said, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And he passed to her the roasted grain. Jesus was reaching out to Judas one last time. He was saying to Judas, Judas, here is my friendship. Take it, friend. Take the last chance of restoration that I am offering to you. Please take it. In Matthew's account of this story, after Jesus announces his knowledge that the one of them will betray him, Jesus then offers the gesture, but then Judas asks Jesus, is it I, Rabbi? Judas knows that it's him. He knows he's the betrayer. And he asks Jesus, is it I, Rabbi? He kept his hypocrisy all the way to the end. And he spurned the last offer of love and restoration from Christ. And the door of opportunity for Judas was slammed shut forever. Divine mercy gave way to divine judgment. And Judas' eternal doom was sealed forever. All of those, church, who do not repent from wearing a mask of hypocrisy or those who wear a mask of hypocrisy to use for their own end in and through God's flock, Peter says in 2 Peter 2 that their condemnation from long ago is not idle and that their destruction is not asleep. Destruction there is personified as a person waiting to give the type of destruction that its master is going to give all of those who poke continuously at the apple of God's eye. What about all of you? Are any of you wearing a mask of Christianity? You and you alone with Christ know that you're pretending. Christ offers to you today just like he did Judas. He's offering you loving restoration. We who are the true church, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And we as a church would implore you, yet we would beg you to be reconciled to God while there is still time. Believe the gospel which alone can save you. Christ Jesus died in the place of hypocrites and pretenders. And your hypocrisy is not beyond the saving grace of God. Church, you who truly 
Treasure Jesus Christ as your all and all. Take great comfort in the great I am who rules and reigns over all things. And whatever comes to pass or what has already come to pass in your life, your sovereign God has known the entire time. He knew it from eternity past to eternity future. He allows, he allows evil around us, knowing, knowing that we would be able to overcome it by his strength, by his power, by his grace. People will mean things for evil to the church, to his children, But God always uses it with his perfect wisdom, perfect power, perfect omniscience. He uses it for our temporal and eternal good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavy words, Lord, of course, and we're so thankful that as a church, you have set aside a time for us to be able to contemplate and understand the life of the son of destruction. He plays a key part in the storyline of your son, Jesus Christ. We are not promised promised peace prestige in this world. We will face persecution. We will face false disciples, false teachers who infiltrate the church. I pray that as time goes on, we would be on guard and protect ourselves from those outside who want to harm harm the apple of your eye who are set out to destroy your kingdom. But of course, we know the end of the story, they will not prevail and nothing will avail from their efforts. In the eyes of the kingdom, in your own eyes, the battle has already been won. Victory in you and in your name is already established. It's as good as done. Help us to continue to understand the words that you have given to us, both in Old and New Testament, to really be on guard, to be alert, to know the signs of the time, to know what can come down in the future, and for us to be a ready people, to take on the evil of the world, knowing whatever comes our way, you mean it all for good. Such grace comes from your hand. Such mercy comes from you. We as your church, thank you. I pray that you would build us up in our most holy faith. Make us faithful in these times. And may you be glorified. May you be magnified in our efforts and in the good that comes from our efforts. May Christ be magnified all in all. We pray in his precious name.